Our Father in heaven, as we come to the time of looking at your word and preaching your word, we are aware of the great need that we have both in preaching and in hearing of the help of God. And we are aware also, Lord, of the hindrances, the distractions that will come to our minds, the temptations that will beset us, those ravens, those birds that will catch away the good seed that has been thrown on our hearts. And Lord, we just ask you to compass us about our shield and our defender. Keep us from the wiles of the devil. Help us as we hear, as we listen, to be attentive to the word, to let faith be mixed with the word, that we might benefit from it. Lord, we look to thee, our eyes are upon thee for this help. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 today. So just one verse. It is a rich verse, and I think we need to take the time, as we're dealing with unity in the church, to take apart verse 2, bit by bit. So we'll read this verse. Fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now, you remember, I'm sure, that last week we talked about how Paul thought so highly of the necessity of unity that he said this would be the filling up of his joy. This would be the cramming full of the net, remember the word picture there, of his joy. This would be the cramming full of his joy, that there would be unity among the Philippians. Now, when we think about unity, I think we need to ask the question, what is unity? What is it? What is Paul so desirous to see at the church in Philippi? What does he want there to be in the church that perhaps isn't in the church? It's extremely important for us to define what unity is before we go on to exhort ourselves to unity. Disagreement about what unity is can cause disunity. We need to at least be agreed on what unity is before we try to pursue unity. So, what is unity then? Well, I think that in the first place, People have a misunderstanding, a misapprehension of what unity is, and it usually comes out in two different, I could say, extremes. One group of people might say, unity is uniformity. The other group of people may say, unity is union. Unity is simply union. What do we mean by uniformity? Some will say unity is simply uniformity. Unity, to be unified, means to be completely conformed. There's no room at all for variation. There's no room for any kind of change. There's no room for any kind of difference between people. Everybody needs to be the same or there's not unity. So if anybody has a different opinion about anything, uh-oh, we're, we're divided, we're in disunity, this is a big problem, Because for them, unity is conformity. 
conformity. Now, there's a great danger to this. And I have seen this before um, in, in churches. And what can happen is, if there is such a, a feeling that unity can only happen if there's uniformity, every single person has to think the same about everything, sometimes even feeling like they have to look the same, then what happens is, there's a merely external uniformity. So people sitting in a congregation feel the pressure. I've got to believe Everything like the preacher says, and everybody, everybody, I'm not talking about heresy. I'm talking about opinions that we might have on things that are not essential. And people might feel, I have got to agree on every jot and tittle of absolutely everything, because if I don't, people are going to be very upset with me. Because there's got to be unity, and there's got to be uniformity, excuse me, for there to be unity. And so what will happen is, instead of people in their hearts in their hearts, agreeing. They will just have an external uniformity. So, they will say what they're supposed to say. They might even dress in a way they're supposed to dress or whatever, but it's not a reality in their hearts. It's not a real unity. It's just an external unity. I saw this one time very vividly when there was a church where a man pastored who is a very um, charismatic leader. I don't mean charismatic there by any means that, he's, that he was part of the charismatic movement, of church movement. I mean, he was a, a powerful leader, a, a man used mightily by God, and he was very, very strong on things that he held. And many people in the church did not agree with this man on a couple of things here and there. But the atmosphere in the body was that there had to be total uniformity or there would not be unity. When that man stepped down as a preacher, all of the church really showed its true colors. The people were not unified. There was an external unity. Everybody was afraid to voice any opinion that differed And there is this feeling you have to act and look and be exactly the same on every single thing or we're not unified. And when that man stood down, like I was saying, everybody showed the true colors and there is massive division in the church because it wasn't a real heart unity. So, is it uniformity? It's not uniformity. My friends, if you have a new believer come to your congregation, that believer is not going to be mature enough to agree with everything you agree on things because he doesn't understand. He just simply doesn't. And if you want him to say he agrees, well, you can have him say that, but he he doesn't understand everything. You get somebody who just gets saved. We believe in in using a head covering for for, for worship women. Are are you going to expect that brand new believer, the day, first day he comes to church or she comes to church, to understand the exegetical arguments of 1 Corinthians 11 and be able to say, I agree wholeheartedly in every aspect with this. There needs to be a teachable disposition that they have. They need to be humble. They need to understand that this is what the church teaches. But you can't expect uniformity because people are at different levels of maturity. And with all sorts of Christian liberty issues, we've mentioned before whether you want to use a Oh, you know, anything from should we use a TV or should we not? Or should we um, dress like this or not? Or whatever different things that are not essential. There needs to be room for disagreement on those things. So, it's not uniformity. 
It's also not union. It's also not union. Some people say union is unity. What I mean by this is, if we're together, if we're working together, we have unity. And this is what some ecumenical movements say. Well, we're going to get together with the Catholics and the Muslims and the Buddhists, and we're going to have a big meeting. And in that meeting, we're going to have unity. So the Pope, not too long ago, went to a mosque and prayed with a Muslim leader in the mosque. Does he have unity? He doesn't have unity. They, they might, might feel we have union, right? We're together, we're working together, so therefore we have unity. They don't have unity. They don't agree on the most fundamental and essential parts of their belief system. They're totally not unified. And yet they think that because we join arms together and we come to a mosque together, we've got unity. You don't have unity. Again, it's another kind of external unity that's not a reality. It's not a heart unity. Unity is based on truth. One man said, probably somebody from the South, some preacher I would imagine, he said, you know, you can tie two tomcats together and throw them over a over a clothesline, and you have union, but you don't have unity. Just because people are together does not mean they're unified. So, I want us from this text, verse 2, to consider what is unity? What is it? Paul outlines what unity is when he says, you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And really in verses 3 and 4, he also, he also defines what unity is. When he says, Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves, and look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So we want to come to God's word and say, Lord, you teach me what is unity. Because maybe I have thoughts about what unity is, what I feel like unity is, and maybe it's not exactly what the word of God says. So, what does God say about what unity is? As we look at these verses over the next two Sundays, um, I I think of this portion, verses 2 through 4 really, as a portrait of unity. It's as if the Apostle Paul takes one brush and he dips it into one color and and he paints a little bit. And by itself, it's, it's not an accurate description of unity. But it's true of unity. But then he adds another, another color, and then the other color, and then he frames it. And when you step back and you look at the portrait, you can say, oh, that's what it is to be a unified body. That's what unity is. And so, really, the framing of, of unity is humility and selflessness. And that's verses 3 through 4. Today, I want to simply look with you at the really the brush strokes of Paul, a portrait of unity. So we'll look at a portrait of unity, part one, so to speak. We'll look at the next, next Lord's Day. And what we see when we look at verse two are three things. One mind, one love, and one passion. He says that you be like-minded. One mind. He really repeats that at the end, of one mind. It's not a, a different Um, designation. Having the same love, one love, a similar love, and then being of one accord. 
one passion. And I'll explain why I am seeing that as one passion. Uh, and the commentators as well are, are seeing that word one accord, and what, it, what it means in its, its fullness there. So let's begin looking at one mind. Paul says that you be like-minded of one mind. What does this mean? What does it mean to be like-minded? What does it mean for a congregation to be like-minded? What does it mean? Well, the word translated mind here, it refers to a mindset. A mindset. A disposition. Uh, you, you can look at verse 5 and read the same word being used. Let this mind. It's the same Greek word translated. Be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's not saying you need to have the same IQ as the man Christ Jesus. He's saying you need to have the same disposition, the same outlook on life, the same purposes for your life, the same understanding as the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that involves humility and selflessness. And that's what Paul is going to really hit at when he gives us the gospel from verses um, 6 through 11. And he's showing us, look at the humiliation, look at the selflessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. Today, I want us to think about the word mind and how it talks about the purpose that we all should have. We should be humble collectively, selfless collectively, but we need to have shared purposes. So when I talk about that, I'm talking about the fundamental, basic purpose of a Christian life. Look, we, we might disagree on things here and there. There might be people here who have different views on baptism in this congregation. Different views on the end times. That's fine. But we can't have different views on the fundamental purpose of, the, of, of our life, of our lives, or of the church. We've got to be like-minded. We've got to be of the same mindset. We can't differ there. There are, there are certain things that you cannot take away anything from or you lose Christianity. You, you could say there, um, there, there are certain things that you, you can't boil down anymore. And we have to agree on the basics of what is our life about and what is the church about. So, what is it about? What's the purpose? Well, you look at Jesus. Jesus Christ is our example in verses 6 through 11. What was his purpose? Well, his purpose fundamentally was to glorify God, wasn't it? I mean, he says in John chapter 17, verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son. In verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. The purpose of Christ's life was, as Paul's, to magnify God. Now, He is God. It was to magnify, yes, Himself, but specifically as the man Christ Jesus came, He came to magnify His Father. And that's our purpose fundamentally. And we have to agree on that. You say, well, of course I agree on that. But do we agree on that? It's shown by the way we live. 
You could, we could all check off check marks on a doctrinal statement. But do we really view our lives as having the sole purpose of glorifying God? Say, well, we have unity because we all agree on all this stuff. But are our lives really viewed by us as for the purpose of glorifying God alone? And so what did Jesus Christ do with his life? How did he glorify his father? In obedience to his father, he lived a life of holiness, laboring to redeem his people. And we in many ways share in that, don't we? In the sense that we also, in obedience to our Father, seek to live holy lives, co-laboring with Jesus to spread the gospel so that we make disciples of all nations. That's the purpose of the individual member of the church and of the church collectively. To make disciples, to edify the believer and to evangelize the lost, to magnify Christ through the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. There's a lot more that could be said there, but at a very fundamental level, that's the purpose of the church. We have to agree on that. Meaning that our purpose is not necessarily to make much of a denomination or to make much of a certain church. Or to make much of a preacher. We're not here to spread our name. We're not here to make people think well of us. We're not here so that people think we're the greatest church in the world. Or that you're the greatest church in the world. That's not the purpose of the church. It's to make Jesus great. It's to magnify Christ. And and yes, by preaching faithfully in this denomination, we trust that that will be done. But we have to be careful That when you think about, why do you want a church to go forward? You've been praying, I know, about certain needs in this congregation. Why do you want that? Is it because you are burdened for the glory of Jesus Christ? Is that the purpose of the church to us? No matter what, if the church glorifies God, if it's a holy church, if it's a gospel-spreading, proclaiming church glorifying God, then we're happy. No matter what else, just glorify Him. That's the like-mindedness that has to be in the congregation. You could have people like-minded with regards to certain other issues, but really people are not like-minded about how they're to live their lives for the glory of God. That is a fundamental aspect of true unity. We've got to be like-minded. So if we want unity, we have to get along with God. Search my heart, O God. Am I living for the glory of God? Do I view this congregation and my involvement in it, not simply for me to benefit, but for me to glorify my Father by giving my life for the proclamation, the spread of the gospel, and the edification of His church. That's the first step to unity, common purpose, common mindset. Um, Give this illustration that might help. You think of a bag of marbles in a Ziploc bag. Those marbles are together. But if you cut the outside of that bag, all the marbles fall out. That's external unity. That's unity where people are together, but they're not really unified. 
We want to be, you want to be like metal shavings that are stuck and drawn to a magnet. What's the magnet? We are here to glorify Christ. And we all come around that purpose. We are here to glorify Christ. Might disagree here, might disagree there. We are here to glorify Christ. And there we can agree. There we can be like-minded. That's the first step. Second, Paul says, having the same love. So one mind, one love. Having the same love. The question with reference to this phrase really is, is Paul referring to love from the Philippians to God or among the Philippians as they love one another? It seems that it is best to understand this as the love that is from the Philippians to one another, not the love that's toward God. And there's some reasons for that. In the light of Philippians 1.8, where Paul talked about his longing for them in the bowels of Christ, and then his prayer in verse 10, that they would, uh, excuse me, verse 9, that their own love would abound yet more and more. It seems that a lack of love among the brethren at Philippi was there. And Paul's prayer was for their increased love toward one another, as he was showing them his love for them in the bowels of Christ. So it seems that if there was a prayer pre this text for their love among one another, having the same love here is going to refer to the same issue that's been going on. At Philippi, you think of Yodius and Syntyche and, and their lack of love toward one another. I think that this is Paul saying you need to have similar love towards one another. And so there shouldn't be respecting of persons. Shouldn't be respecting of persons. Having the same love. You're not loving one person more than you love another member. There is the same love. That love that is in God. That pure, gentle, kind, merciful, compassionate, never failing love that is in God is in your hearts by the shedding abroad of the Holy Ghost, of the love of God in you. And that love is to be felt and known among the brethren. And unity is when the church is full of love. The same love. It's, it's a very sad thing when one member is, is loving a certain clique of people and totally disregarding another. That is not unity. I, I think of James too. My brethren have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Our faith is not one that we respect persons. So we, we say, as he goes on, for if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and come in somebody poor, dressed terribly, that you respect the one that looks nice, you respect the person that's dressed nice, but the person who comes in and they're wearing vile raiment, the person who comes in and they're, they're messed up, they're not right, and you look a little, you look a little kind of sideways at them. And James says that is not, that is not the way the church ought to be. There ought to be no respect of persons. He says, and if you do this, are you not then partial and become judges of evil thoughts? Meaning, isn't this evil? Isn't this so unlike God? 
to treat someone who walks in the door who looks nice one way and someone who walks in who doesn't another way. This is not this, the way that the church ought to operate because this is not the way God operates. The Christ we believe in sat and ate with sinners. And yet he was mocked by the Pharisees for doing that. But not only in just somebody coming in the doors, but isn't it true that that happens within even members or regular attenders? Oh, I don't get along with this person. We don't, have, we don't share similar likes. Or the way they act bothers me. They are annoying. Or I just don't get them. And so we don't treat them with love? We can't have, you cannot have unity without love. Love is the bond of unity. You can't have it. And I would just encourage you, if you're finding it hard to love somebody in the, in the congregation... I would draw your attention to 1 Peter 1. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, they've been purchased with that blood. Peter goes on to say, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned, watch how he describes this, unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Fervently. That is, that is not your typical just, I don't like them so I'm not going to talk to them. Fervently. You, we are called as a church to love every single member of this body with a pure heart fervently. That's the command of Scripture. And remember, it's because He shed His blood for them. If you find trouble delighting in somebody in this church, just think. As we all, we all struggle with that from time to time. I understand that. But just think. Christ delights in them. Christ delights in them. If Christ was far, far more holy than you and I, can put up with their failures, cannot we? He delights in them and He shed His blood for them. And then... Just keep in mind, too, that love is, 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 is an act of the will, isn't it? To seek the good of another. You, you might have trouble with somebody. You might not understand their personality. But you can still act in love towards them for their good. And one commentator, Edie, just to show you the importance of love. He's an old commentator and he said, Equal love will develop equal opinions. The head will be ruled by the heart. Offensive individualism disappears in brotherly love. So he's saying, people disagreeing with all sorts of things, instead of you know, thinking, I've got I've to nail all of these things in everybody's life until they look the same. Cultivate love. Cultivate love. And if you cultivate love, those people who disagree, if they love, they'll become more teachable. And if you're loving them, they'll be more ready to receive that teaching. Typically, love cultivates unity, even, even doctrinal. But we can't have doctrinal unity. You can't have doctrinal unity without love. That'd be possible. One great quote, and I'll leave this point. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. All things love. So, Paul says, one mind, 
one love, one passion. We have this phrase, being of one accord, of one accord. What does it mean to be one of one accord? Well, accord speaks about being in harmony. Everybody, if you were, if you were a part of an orchestra, everybody's notes are on the same, in the same key. Everybody's in tune. Every, there's harmony there. That's accord. And, and that is certainly the, the meaning of this word, but it has the idea of together in soul, co-souled, harmonious in the beating of the hearts of everyone in the congregation. If your hearts were beating, they would beat in the same to the same beat, to the same pulse beat. It's a passion that is felt by members of the congregation. Because this word has to do with the soul and the passion, the, the desires of members in a congregation. So like-minded referred to the necessity of having the same understanding. One accord refers to the necessity of having the same passion having the same burden. This is extremely important. You might have one, you might agree we have one purpose, but we might not share passion. If you have a place that is doctrinally sound, but dead, dead, no passion for the things of God, no warmth in the preaching, but doctrinally sound, it's sound, And they make sure they are sound. They are absolutely down the line, completely down the line. But there's no passion for God. There's no warmth. There's no zeal for God. No zeal for souls. No zeal for prayer. No zeal zeal for preaching. And no love. You don't have unity. You might think you have unity, but you don't have biblical unity. Biblical unity. So there needs to be a shared fellow-souled passion for what? For that purpose. What was the purpose? In obedience to our Father, we live holy lives to edify the, the, the church and evangelize the lost because we want to glorify God. And so we have to ask, is that a shared passion? So, well, does God really command passion? Turning to Romans 12, verse 11. The Apostle Paul speaks in, in Romans 12 directly to the issue of zeal. And I just want to show you that zeal is commanded. He speaks in Romans chapter 12 about a number of practical duties after he presses them with the truth in Romans 12, 1 through, 1 through 3, or 1 through 2, excuse me about the gospel and its implications. If you believe this gospel, you should live this way. If you look at verse 9, Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affection one to another, with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business. What's that next phrase? Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, but fervent in spirit. 
What does it mean to be fervent in spirit? The Greek word translated fervent literally means to be hot and to boil. It's like Paul's saying, you need to be boiling over with heat for the work of the Lord, for serving the Lord. You need to be fervent in spirit. So what, what, is, what Paul wants to see in Philippi is not just a dry, yeah, we come and we agree and we're happy and, and, and just, you know, just kind of going through the motions of, of church, but that there needs to be a shared zeal among the people of God, a shared passion for God among the people of God. And so, again, our, our idea of unity, I think, if we could be honest here, at least I know my idea of unity has been very different than the biblical idea of unity. So the biblical idea of unity is not simply, right, uniformity. It's not just everybody agrees and checks a checkbox off. So what it looks like as we throw a couple of pieces of the painting up in the portrait is you see a, a congregation who are united in the fundamental purpose of why they exist. They're united. They have all said, Amen. We are here to glorify God, and we will stop at nothing until that is done. We want to be holy. We want to magnify our Savior. We want to spread the gospel. We want to edify the believers. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. I can agree on that. And then, a congregation that is full of love. People are loved. People are being loved. People know they're loved. And yes, I know there will be people that don't feel loved. Sometimes it's not because they're not being loved. Sometimes it is because they're not being loved. But a congregation that, generally speaking, is full of the love of God. And then finally, it's a congregation that when they come together, they know my heart's beating with yours. We are both passionate about this. We are here to serve God. We are here to proclaim the gospel. We are here to spread His gospel. We are here to worship Him. Our hearts are beating together. Our hearts are beating together. So if you find yourself wondering, do I really have any kind of heart passion for this? Do I, do I have any heart passion for God? Do I, in my heart, is there any real passion at all? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. The psalmist said, While I muse, the fire burned. Meditate on Christ. Get alone. Pray until God warms your heart. There will be times, yes, I understand, when you feel cold. But generally speaking, as you look at your life, there ought to be some passion for God. There ought to be some zeal, some fervency in the work of God. And if there's not, you will lack unity in your congregation and even in your family. So may the Lord bless us to your hearts, and may we all search our hearts. Uh, far be it from me to say in any way, shape, or form that these things lack in any individual here or, or the body collectively. But please take these things, think through them, pray over them, Bear your hearts before God. Lord, do I see unity the same way you do? And if there's something that needs to be made right with Him, to do that. Let's end with a word of prayer this morning. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy mercy. 
in calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We have been placed in the body of Christ. We are a part of every believer in the sense that we are joined inextricably spiritually to Christ. And yet, Lord, that union that we have objectively is sometimes not known subjectively. That we don't have unity. And Lord, give us unity in our homes, husbands and wives. Give them unity, Lord. Maybe not uniformity on everything, but give them a shared fundamental purpose. Give them a love between one another. Give them a passion for God. Give them that unity, Lord, in their homes. Give unity in this congregation between the elder and the, and the deacon and the people. Give unity, Lord. Pour out your Spirit. Let the fruit of the Spirit be brought forth. Be gracious for Jesus' sake. Amen.